I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be looking at Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I think we've taken kind of a leap, haven't we? From our last podcast? We have a bit, yes. We skipped over um, uh, Matthew chapter 17, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it was a really hard passage. Um, It's one I've read many times before. It's one of those that it would be easy to jump over, I think, um, and find something else to preach on. So I think uh, we need some perspective on this. Yeah, I, I would say it's one of the most difficult passages in Matthew and maybe one of the most difficult passages in the gospel tradition as a whole because, um, you know, I mean, it outlines a procedure that seems impractical at best and offensive at worst. Um, and so, yeah. you know, uh, you know, th- this is this is the passage. This is the only passage <laughs> where um, anything that is attributed to Jesus could be serve as the basis for the practice of excommunication in its various forms. And it really seems to be at odds with what we know of Jesus. And yet, one of the things Matthew does is that he has couched this really difficult pericope in the context of a discourse. So we're in the fourth discourse here where... You know, we have we we hear about care for the little ones. We hear about seeking the lost sheep that's gone astray. We hear about forgiving seventy-seven times, and we hear only in Matthew's gospel the parable uh, of the um, uh, unforgiving servant. Basically, the parable where you know the the one who was forgiven much didn't forgive little, and and the idea is those of us who have been forgiven by God have. To are are called upon to f- extend that forgiveness to others. So we have this really awkward text that's uh, just kind of wrapped in in um, you know passages, uh, teachings of Jesus that make perfect sense and that we understand. And I think Matthew may have done that on purpose because you know it's it's a this is a tough set of verses. You know, my, my thought is, why does Matthew include it at all? And uh, well, I and, and I would say, into that here. yeah, I I I'll I'll get into that, but but um and and you know one of the challenges, you know, even like Ulrich Lutz and his commentary just says, you know, there's just no consistency to be found here. On the one hand, Matthew, you know, Matthew cites Jesus as you must forgive, and on the other hand, here he seems like he's saying you must not forgive, you know, and I, I think Lutz is putting it a little bit too sharply, but it, there is some ten- there is a tension here. That's undeniable. There's no denying that there's a tension, and hopefully we'll find some coherence between this apparent tension between cutting off contact with a brother or sister in the community of faith who refuses to repent and the clear command to practice mercy, grace, and forgiveness. You know, you said something there that said, you know, somebody that's in the community of faith, and it seems to me that there's tension also between really what a person in the community of faith is and how they should be and how they act and how they act towards each other. Oh, surely. I mean, if you're truly oh, surely. a person of faith, 
So this has got that. I think that's part of the tension too. I is, think so too, and I think it probably came out of the life situation of Matthew's church. Yeah, and we'll, I'll, right. I'll, I'll comment about that a little bit later all too. All right, yeah. all right. So moving on. Yeah, you may wonder, uh, you know, how I got all that out of these five verses. Well, of course. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm ta- I'm couching it in the chapter in chapter 18 as a whole, and and you know again, this is just good interpretation um, in terms of how you practice it. You know, whenever you encounter a difficult passage like this one, it's essential to set it in the broader context. And in a very real sense, Matthew has done that by constructing the fourth of his five discourses. Here we could call this the community discourse mm-hmm. in chapter 18. And while we're only going to focus on the lesson for today, the only way I think to to read this passage in a manner that is faithful to the gospel tradition as a whole is to hear the echoes of what is found in the whole discourse we have to mm. we have to read it from the perspective of the whole discourse that's that's that just essential sense. yeah all right well and and perhaps the gospel as a whole right too. and and again i mean i mean it's it's you know reading a passage in context is sort of a, 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 a kind of a layer there are, there are layers of context right because it's mm-hmm. the context of matthew's gospel as a whole the context of jesus teachings as a whole right and so um as you may recall in chapters 14 through 17 which are the, is the narrative portion since the last discourse the parables discourse in chapter 13 mm-hmm. they're all about how jesus focuses effort his efforts not on the people in general but specifically on the disciples and just mm-hmm. as a reminder we see this in passages where other gospels mention the crowds but matthew omits any reference to the crowds mm-hmm. jesus what jesus does in this section of matthew's gospel he's only doing and saying to his disciples And so the result gives the impression that Jesus is turning towards his own disciples as the core of a new community that he's founding in the wake of the lack of response from the Jewish people. And so the discourse that follows naturally deals with life in this new community. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting, but it's kind of part of that. That kind of process of Matthew kind of putting material together then. Yeah, it is. And I'm beginning to feel like a broken record on that because, (laughs) especially regarding Matthew's discourses, because just like the other discourses we've seen, Matthew begins with material that's shared with Mark. And in the first pericope, it's also shared with Luke, um, including the disciples' question about greatness and Jesus' warning against causing one of the little ones in the community to stumble. Matthew follows that with his version of the parable of the lost sheep, which he shared with Luke, perhaps via Q, we don't know. Um, And thus the community discourse begins with an emphasis on humility, on caring for the little ones in the community, and perhaps... You know, this might tie in with Matthew's emphasis where Jesus says, you know, his, his phrase for the disciples are, you of little faith. And so perhaps there's some reflection of the life of Matthew's community in that. But, there, you know, the, the, this community discourse emphasizes caring for the little ones in the community, mm-hmm. seeking to restore those who may have, like the lost sheep, gone astray. This is crucial context. You know, this is the context in which the verses that we're going to deal mm-hmm. with uh, are are set and and we can't we can't ignore that. And as I was well, part of was I was preparing for this, and I've been thinking about, of course, preaching on this myself. That was really the emphasis I was coming at with this was this community concept. Mm-hmm. That's before I ever talked to Alan. So, but I do think um, that's what struck me about it is is this is a community kind of piece, which then if you're telling us that. Matthew probably is addressing this within his own community that we have kind of a double layer as well. Not yeah, only Jesus, yeah. but 
Well, in fact, in fact, one of the, one of the conclusions that Lutz comes to in his commentary is that this kind of process can only be uh, conducted really the way it's intended to in Matthew's gospel in a community that's small enough where people really kind of know each other and they have oh, yeah. they have a stake in the outcomes, right? And and right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we finally to the material for yep. this week. This leads us to our lesson for this week. And at this point in the community discourse, we're dealing with material that is almost completely unique to Matthew's gospel. And this leads many New Testament scholars to the conclusion that we're dealing with a pastoral practice that developed in Matthew's community. And, you know, again, we can see similar practices in Paul's letters that um, uh, related to the various communities that Paul established, mm -hmm. especially in um, the letters to the Corinthians. First Corinthians 5 speaks about disciplining someone who was... Mm -hmm. who was um, potentially damaging the community. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2 talks about an offender mm -hmm. who had apparently opposed Paul, and apparently they had already disciplined him, and now Paul says it's time to restore him. And so, you know, we know that a, a similar practice was developed in Paul's communities, and so perhaps what we're dealing with here is a, is a practice, a pastoral practice that was, deal, that was developed in Matthew's community. And so Matthew begins the section of the discourse by setting up the situation. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you were listened to, you have regained that one. Now, I will say that's the new RSV updated edition. If you're still working with the old new RSV, <laughs> uh, <yes. laughs> you know, it has what I consider to be one of the clumsiest efforts at inclusive language translation I've ever seen. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's uh, if another member of the church sins against you. And that's oh, wow. just anachronistic. It sets up all kinds of um, premises that are just not um, appropriate for Got the context it. at all. Oh, wow. Most English translations do something like what the um, new RSV updated edition did mm -hmm. here. If your brother or sister. Now, there is a parallel to this saying, and, and this is... Uh, th there's also another parallel to Thomas later on, but there is a parallel to this saying in Luke's gospel, but it is much shorter in Luke 17, 3. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. Now, note that in Luke, the point is about sin in general. If another disciple sins, not a specific sin against someone in the community of faith. And also, the emphasis in Luke is clearly on forgiveness and correction. And that's not so clear when our lesson from Matthew for today is read uh, uh, out without the context. Without the context. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I didn't pick up on that. Um, maybe I had already mentally put that into there, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. So if you pull it out of context, you can really get into trouble. You can. <laughs> okay. And so, um, context of, of Matthew what is that context well I think the context is a situation that's a that's in that's a practical one in a relatively small community of faith one disciple does something that potentially causes another to stumble and you know I think we can say from the way this 
this verb scandalizo or the noun scandalon is used. It's referring to stumbling in the New Testament. It's used it referring to stumbling either in relation to faith or in relation to behavior, the Christian life. Mm-hmm. And, and we can see, again, we see a similar situation in the Pauline communities where the question of eating meat was one that caused Gentile converts to stumble. And, and Paul deals with that at length, and he says, you know, um, if, if eating meat is going to harm another Christian brother or sister, then I'm never going to eat meat, even though he knows that there's nothing wrong with eating the meat because the, 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 the pagan deities to, to, to whom the meat in the meat market would have been dedicated before it was sold, um, he says, they're not, there's only one God, and they, these, other, these other pagan deities have no reality. Right. So, but right. but if that knowledge hurts another another believer, then then I'm I'm in the wrong there. And so it's a very right. practical right. situation. Right. Now, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Now what we don't know is what the presenting issue was in Matthew's community. But I would I would say um, it must have been mm-hmm. something similar like that. Something where, you know, um, cultural issues or or. Um, practices of faith uh, kind of clashed with one another. And so the vast majority of, of, of the New Testament uh, seems to um, reflect um, um, mixed Jewish and Gentile congregations. And, you know, Jewish and Gentile people getting along with one another was challenging in those days at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so uh, there seems to be different ways than that people are responding to whatever, um, whatever the sin is, right? Yeah. So, um, the first, uh, uh, just a brotherly, ad, like one-on-one, brotherly ad, right. admonition. Right. And, and the verb is, is elenko, and it's translated sometimes rebuke or correct or admonish or, you know, but, but the idea is, you know, um, admonition for one who's harming the community you know, and, and, and something we may or may not realize is that it's actually found in Leviticus 19 in connection with the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself is, Levitic- is the conclusion of a, um, a passage in Leviticus 19. The whole context says, you shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, there's that admonition, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole mm-hmm. context of the of right. the of the love for your, for right. your neighbor cl- command. Right. So it makes sense that that reproving or correcting someone who sins against you in such a way, um, they sin in such a way that it creates an obstacle to faith or to the life of discipleship. Mm-hmm. This is a perfectly reasonable, practical expression of the love of one's neighbor and of solidarity mm-hmm. within the community of faith. And so it's, it's you know, given the prominence of you shall love your neighbors yourself in Jesus' teachings, it's, it makes sense that Matthew's community might, would have, would have um, looked to this passage as a way of, of dealing with potential conflicts in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I uh... <laughs> I was talking to my son about this. My son's a philosophy major. So I thought, oh, let's just see how he responds. And, um, you know, it really seems to me that it's a, kind of an ethics issue, right? At the end of the day, that, yeah. that it's, this is, this is not sitting in my heart. This is not, um, this is not sitting in my mind, but rather this is, this is that direct thing that hurts somebody else. Right. It has an ethical, um, thing. And right. so we talked about that for a while, but I, 
it did strike me as being and central to this whole thing is this 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 sin against somebody and it's said in the community and and that's that's mm-hmm. crucial right, to right. that's crucial to understanding the situation of these verses it, it we're not dealing with sin in general we're not dealing with private sin Right. Which is different from Luke 17, the parallel in Luke 17, 3. But rather, sin against you. So if someone sins against you. Now, mm-hmm. there is a significant textual problem here. And the problem is that the manuscript evidence is divided with some of the earliest and best witnesses omitting the Greek words, eis se. Um, and... Um, uh, I mean, you're talking about the two best manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, uh, mm-hmm. both o- omit this, plus some oh. other pretty significant manuscripts in, in, hmm. in the early tradition. So this creates a great deal of, of uncertainty about these words and whether or not they're original. Um, the committee that put together the most recent critical text of the Greek New Testament included the phrase in single brackets, to indicate the uncertainty surrounding these te- this text. If you go to your Greek New Testament, you'll see in the, in the Greek New Testament, hmm. it's, it's in brackets. Now, either it was added at some point, and honestly, a, a, reason, a rationale for adding it escapes. I, I, don't, I just don't think there is one. Or it was omitted either intentionally, maybe out of comparison with Luke 17.3, where it's just, mm. if anyone sins. Sure. Or maybe to give this a broader application, that it's not just to, you know this interpersonal conflict in the community setting, but rather it's if anybody sins generally. Uh, you can see how maybe some early Christian scribes might have wanted to broaden the application of this text. Most contemporary English versions include it, uh, although a number of them have a footnote alerting the reader to a problem. Uh, uh, I think we should note the New American Standard Bible, the NIV, <laughs> and the Net right. Bible omit it. The fact that the NIV omits it is huge. You know, I, I, I am grateful that, that most modern translations will give a footnote when it comes, many at least will give a footnote where it comes to um, these issues, but I'm not sure that the footnote really does justice to the textual problem here. And I, I, this is where mm. I, I like the fact that the Greek, the, the editors of the Greek, New Testament put the words in brackets in the text because that indicates that you know we think this belongs here but we're not sure and and, and putting a footnote you know people are tend to just in the reading Bible reading they just tend to read over the foot read, read over the text and just ignore the footnotes absolutely oh absolutely and this is wow this is crazy and I'm kind of surprised the NIV leaves it out mm-hmm. when the others put it in mm-hmm. and what um what um what does the king james have king james has it in because it was it in the majority it, it was in the majority text that's it what was I in the, yeah it okay, was in the it I was in the majority okay. manuscripts yeah okay that's what i thought i just saw yeah. that on there i was just thinking about um people in different traditions and how they yeah. look at things yeah. and just, now in yeah, my right. mind the decisive argument is that when, when, when it says when the two of you are alone implies the necessity, I think, of I this think idea so. that it's a, an interpersonal, it's between two people, that there's a conflict right. between two people. And so it implies the need for against you. And, and so I, that's one of the, I think, the defi- decisive argument for including I say. Well, and and I, I want to I point out something here about textual criticism, and, and that is that you have to weigh the evidence. You don't just, 
like added up numerically. You have to weigh the evidence. What's the most cons- important factor here? So here the most important factor is not, not the fact that the best manuscripts omit it. The most important factor is that you know the, the context really requires that these words be there. Well, yes, and I I agree. Also, the way the rest of the rest of it's handled, with, yeah. it, there's kind of this this, right. this progression. So it make it makes sense, but mm-hmm. it's it's also so cool. I mean, it, it, to think about because people aren't going to pick up on that, or if they're reading from their NIV, they're just going to assume they're not even going to know. I know that these other words are here. Could be, and, um, yeah, but it has yeah. significant implications for how we read the passage because this I is, I, I don't think we're talking about just sin in general. I think we're talking about a specific situation where someone has done something that has caused uh, an, another member of, or another another uh, disciple in the community of faith to to either stumble in regard to faith or in regard to their conduct and their behavior. You know? Yeah, I agree. This is cool. Okay, so... So now, then, only yeah, it's only in this first verse, it's only in the initial framing of the situation, verse 15, that the possibility of repentance is considered. And it's literally, if he hears you, um, mm-hmm. um, and the end result of regaining the one who had sinned in the first place, or orients the actions advised in our lesson toward restoration. And I think that's important. Yes, because I yes, think we I need agree. to hear, if he hears you, then you have regained your brother or sister. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, there's this orientation, I think, toward restoration that's maybe not stressed clearly enough, especially in some of the other verses, but I think it's there. And I think, I think that restoration must be considered a possibility at every stage in the process outlined in the, in the following verses, even though the process, formally speaking, the process itself does not mention it. You know, the next verses imply that this yeah. this um, brother or sister is going not going to not going to heed the admonition and continue to not going to heed it even after the church has has admonished uh, this person. And and so you know, I think, however. Even though formally speaking, these verses don't, these, the, the following verses don't even consider the possibility of restoration. I think it has to be implied uh, from, from the fact that I it's agree. in this first no, verse. I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 Now, I, I, we've spent a lot of time on verse 15, but we've done that, right. in, I've done that in, on purpose because getting. Verse 15, right, I think is crucial to understanding the passage as a whole. Well, and that's what's so frightening, though, Alan, is when I see these major ones not even mention that it's there. Average people will not know unless they read the footnote, if it's in the footnote. Mm-hmm. And it, it frightens me a little. It mm-hmm. frightens me because it, it, it leads it to a whole different kind of it um, does. interpretation. It does yeah. indeed. It does indeed. Now, Matthew continues then with the possibility that the one who sins refused to listen. In verse 16, if you're not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that's verse 16. Now, this verse clearly alludes to the principle articulated in Deuteronomy 19.15, although the situation is quite different. In Deuteronomy, the witnesses are there to confirm the actions of the accused. Here, they are witnesses to the conversation between the offender and the one offended. And 
whether they're there to ensure the protection of both parties in the conversation or in this whole process, or whether they're there to strengthen the admonition, the admonition of the offender, it's unclear. Mm-hmm. We're not sure. And you could make a case either way, uh, because in, 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 in a Jewish context, um, actually the two witnesses actually functioned to protect the accused, in a, in a very in a very real sense, because it's kind of like our legal procedures. You know, you have to have appropriate evidence before a person can be condemned, right. and so um, the, or, or or convicted. And so the you know there, there it is it is a possible possibility that the witnesses were there not only to protect the the uh, the one who was offended, but also the one who's accused of offending. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then. They move on, and there's a third step to this. Right. Thing. And so the, the, the next step in the process, assuming the offender continues to refuse to hear admonition, is to tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Now, this is the second time in Matthew's gospel that Gentile and tax collector are used in a negative way. Um, uh, the first time being in Matthew five forty six to forty seven. If right. you greet only those who greet you, how is that any different from a Gentile? How is right, that any different right. from a tax collector? Except at this point, the word translated Gentile is really more like pagan. In Matthew mm. five forty seven, it's ethnos, which is clearly Gentile. Here it's ethnikos, which w- might not seem that big of a difference, ethnos mm. versus ethnikos, but in the Greek. Uh, ethnikos means something more like pagan, or oh. and and so for example, uh, J. B. Phillips and his translation uses pagan here. The NIV mm-hmm. uses pagan here. The New Living Translation uh, uses pagan. Uh, some of the older translations, like the King James and the Geneva Bible, uses heathen. They use heathen. Uh, the CEV mm-hmm. and the Holman Christian Standard Bible use unbeliever. And so the idea isn't is that this is mm-hmm. you know. It, it's a kind of a it's kind of a more negative con, idea than just someone who's non-Jewish, someone who's not Jewish. You know, it's it's someone mm-hmm. who's positively pagan, who is an unbeliever, who refuses to believe, who refuses to be a part of the community, that kind of thing. Mm. Now, that's very, this is really interesting, and my brain's just spinning as you're going back and forth between translations. I mean, if you. If you've had Greek at all, I think you should probably try to go through it yourself and then figure out how it fits together, right? Because yeah, yeah. if you're relying on the NIV, you're going to miss the one above. And if you're relying on, um, if you're relying on, uh, uh, if you're relying uh, on the New Revised Standard, standard you're going to miss this one. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Now, while this does not imply final condemnation in any way, it does mean exclusion from the community. And um, I think Lutz is formally correct that there is no mention of discipline here. Um, uh, I mean, the passage simply doesn't say, you know, thus you are disciplining. This is how you should discipline, you know, the offender. It doesn't formally mention it. I would say that the purpose of the process is to bring offenders to repentance so that they may be restored to the community. And I think this is, again, I'm reading this from from verse 15. I'm reading this just from the situation. I'm reading this from the context of Matthew 18 as a whole. And Lutz is formally correct. And his, his, I mean, his his commentary is a brilliant one. But... um, I think he's drawing the lines a little too sharply here. Mm, okay. Obviously, even 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 so, with with these two examples, it seems a little bit hard to just forgive. So, right. how do we make sense of it? 
and and that's just i mean that's that's part of the challenge is that the whole procedure seems foreign to the message and example of jesus i think again part of what seems to be going on is that these are perhaps standing rules or almost case law that were developed in the in matthew's community to deal with conflicts within the within the group but as I mentioned earlier, earlier, while Matthew seems to feel a duty to include this tradition in his gospel, he couches it extensively in sayings of Jesus that are, we, you know, I'm not saying, I'm kind of skirting around this. This seems to be something that was developed by the church, and it was put on the lips of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Um, mm-hmm. But we have clear teachings of Jesus that, that are, are shared with other gospels uh, that, that Matthew couches this this uh, perhaps church practice in his community in these sayings of Jesus about humility, about caring for the little ones and practicing forgiveness. And and I think that's just essential to, to dealing with these verses rightly or, or, or in any, any faithfully as Davies and Allison conclude in their, in their commentary, those who involve themselves in deciding whether a brother is to be expelled must live and breathe the spirit of forgiveness. And I, I, I think right. that's crucial. You know, this isn't about exercise of power. This is about, you know, this must be conducted in a, in a, in a, in a, with love. It has to be right. conducted with love. It has to be right. something where the people who are making the, the decision are going to be, are going to feel the loss of this person who has to be right. excluded for the sake of the good of the community. Right. 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 Furthermore, I think this process, as as I said or alluded to earlier, I agree with Lutz in his commentary that I think this process is designed to be practiced in a community small enough that people feel a sense of solidarity with those who are excluded by the, by it. And you know, finally, I would say that these tensions in which the church lives, whereas we're going to find in the following verses, are to be carried out to God, are to be carried to God in prayer, and are to be lived in the promise of, of the presence of Christ. And so all the whole context has to be taken into consideration. Yeah. I'm just processing Matthew's community as we're talking about this and because the way he includes it. And I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask, do we have any other documents that relate to Matthew's community? No, we don't. I didn't think so. That's why I pull in Paul, for example, because, mm-hmm. I mean, here we have a different Christian community in a Gentile context dealing with a very similar problem. The problem is is some sort of right. problem between uh, two people in the community, and it's mm-hmm. and it's harming the community. I think what they're trying to do here is come up with a way of of protecting the integrity of the community while still being as loving and merciful as possible. And I mm-hmm. think that's that's the way we read these verses. Right. Ugh. But but yeah. but if you take it out of context. Oh, I know. You know, it's like, oh, that person I, that rubs me the wrong way in my church, I can discipline them. I can get the right. I can get the session to exclude them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and and that's not what it's about. It's about Mm-mm. it's about in ensuring the the integrity and and the well being of the whole community, yeah. and and right. and but and it has to be carried out in a spirit of forgiveness. It has to be carried out right with a with a not intending to say, oh, I can just get rid of this person. It's about how can we restore what seems to be broken here? That's right. what it's about. Yeah. And, and, it's yeah. a, and, and again, as I said, 
the people who are doing this have to have to care enough for the individual who is seen as the offender that if they have to go the whole way and and exclude him or her from the community it's going to hurt them to do so you know and and so there has to be this sense of solidarity there has to be this sense of love and compassion um, and it has to be carried out in prayer and 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 with a reference to the idea that all of our lives are lived in the presence of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I actually really like it now that we're getting into it, but mm-hmm. it's it's going to take some careful teaching. Absolutely. Teach as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So then at this point, Matthew adds several other sayings that likely were not originally they didn't originate in 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 connection with with Matthew eighteen fifteen through seventeen. Those those verses were kind of on their own, right? And then Matthew eighteen and nineteen and twenty seem to have been separate sayings. Yes, I think so. But uh, and and these other sayings reinforce the authority of the church to take this solemn action. But they also offer, I think, essential guidelines. And perhaps already Matthew was aware of the need to keep such a process from becoming a convenient abuse of power. Uh, Certainly the history of the interpretation of this passage in the church bears ample witness to the, the great temptation that these verses can be used simply as a means of abusing power. Right, right. Now, first of all, Matthew cites a version of the principle he had reported in connection with Peter's confession. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here, however, the you is plural, clearly referring to the community as a whole. Yes, yes, yes. Extending the authority given to Peter in Matthew 16, 19 to the whole church. Now, one of the things I think that's important is to note there's no indication of church leaders here. Right. It is individual, two or three witnesses, take it to the whole church. The whole church, yep. Yep. And so, so this authority of binding and loosing is given to the church as a whole. And again, while the effect is to provide divine sanction for the church's decisions in these matters, I think I prefer the Reformed tradition's skepticism about the ability of humans to rightly administer this kind of discipline. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yes, and that's, I mean, that's the challenge today. We'll probably end up talking about it at the end. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So then at this point, Matthew adds what was almost certainly an independent saying of Jesus here. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, in verse 19. Now, I mean, just the fact that this is an independent saying of Jesus can be tested by the fact that this saying has often been taken completely out of context. And I will note, this is the only context in the canonical Gospels in which this saying is found. This saying of Jesus is not found anywhere else in the canonical Gospels. And so it's only found in the context of this situation of how do you deal yeah. with an offender who refuses to repent when right. admonished, right? And so, uh, and, and so it's it's sort of it's almost um, uh, another way of reinforcing the authority of the of the church. Uh, just like verse eighteen, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The idea is binding is 
retaining sins and and loosing is forgiving sins right but here it's again if 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 two of you agree on earth about anything you ask it will be done for you by my father in heaven and so it's another way of kind of reinforcing um uh the authority of the church to carry out this process for disciplining those who by by their actions have harmed a brother or sister in the community right exactly but again i think the idea is that this process must be undertaken prayerfully. And, and if it's undertaken prayerfully, I think that implies a bias toward forgiveness. Uh, Lutz points this out. He says, you know, is the community going to pray for this person to be condemned or to, or to be excluded or to, or to continue to go their right, own way? Right, no, right. that makes no sense. They're going to pray right. for this person to be restored. They're going right. to pray for, this, for, for the forgiveness. And so, again, I think... The fact that that the process must be undertaken prayerfully like this implies a bias toward forgiveness that's not often that's often not missed by people who are yeah. eager to oh, use definitely. this, you know, to to, right. to as a, as a as a way of wielding power. Right. Exactly. It's yeah, not exactly. about power. <laughs> and <laughs> Calvin power. would say that as well. Yeah. 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 So finally, Matthew concludes with what is almost universally considered to be a post-resurrection saying of the risen Lord via a Christian prophet. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them in verse 20. Now, although Paul could use similar language of his presence among the people he was writing to, although he was not there, I I think the reason for this widespread opinion that it's a a post-resurrection saying of the risen Lord via Christian prophet is because Jesus speaks of being among any who are gathered in my name anywhere, and I think implicitly also is at any any time. And so, uh, you know, this could only have taken place after the resurrection. Right. But I think I think one thing that we miss where two or three are gathered in my name I'm there among them. I think we overlook the fact that this is an important restatement of Jesus as God with us in Matthew's gospel on the way to the final declaration in verse in, in at the end of the gospel Matthew 28:20 20, 20, I'm with you always. Well, I think we should beautiful. see this statement connected with that that promise oh, of yeah. presence. Yeah, I like that, and I, I don't know if I put that together before, so, yeah. So, again, you know, this kind of, of process of, of carrying out discipline not only has to be carried in, in, out in a spirit of humility and love with a bias toward restoration and forgiveness, um, bathed in prayer, it also has to be carried out from the standpoint of everything we're doing, we're doing Christ is with us. Christ is here. So right. what would Jesus do yeah. sort of is, is, yeah, is necessary, yeah, yeah. right? It has to be part of it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think that's a beautiful, um, actually, what turns out to be a really beautiful passage, um, what we initially read as being actually kind of harsh. So yeah. um, well, and- I think that community. it's that community emphasis. Yeah. And I've, I've said, you know, that Matthew's not my favorite gospel but here matthew does some really beautiful work i think in trying yeah. to take something that obviously must have developed in his community and included in the gospel in a way that you know it really is um he's making an effort to um demonstrate coherence between this practice and and the teachings of jesus elsewhere and so again while this passage generates perhaps more questions than we could answer i mean they're all i mean if you study just the history of of how this passage has been interpreted in the in the church you know it raises all kinds of problems i think we can understand it as one of those instances where the issue of the demands of discipleship 
So, in other words, discipleship implies a certain way of life that is going to um, enhance the the community and not going to harm the community. So that the, the, here the demands of discipleship stand in tension with the promise of God's grace, and we've seen that many times already in our in our journey yeah, through the Gospels. We have. Yeah. We have. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and um, Christy's going to take us through Calvin's interpretation of this passage. And surprise, surprise, Calvin is going to have some pretty pastoral insights, isn't he? Yes, yes. (laughs) And this is actually a pretty big um, scriptural uh, passage for Calvin. And I think in part not only for the development of his his understanding um, of of the church, but also in response to how the Roman Catholics looked at this passage. So it becomes a really important little set of verses. But um, the first the first thing is that this is about correction. And it's part of Calvin's expectations for Christian living. And that's so much part of Geneva and Calvin's identity, um, perhaps getting even distorted, of course, again, in the Calvinism era. But Calvin claims that this is an example where we are called to forgive one another, but are supposed to also correct one another. And for Calvin, this is the true Christian approach to correction. It is not to be, as he said, too harsh, nor is it to be too lenient. It is to be done out of love, mutual love. And he reminds us that love is not flattery, but it is a gentle approach and it is to encourage not to discourage. So some of the things we've talked about. Yeah, well, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that Calvin takes this point of view because, you know, I think if you can say anything about his theology, especially in the Institutes, it's very practical. It's it's geared toward the church and, and how does a Christian right. live their life. Right. So the instructions are given here in three parts. First, to warn a person privately. Second, to repeat the warning before witnesses, and third, to deliver him or her over to the judgment of the church. It is important to Calvin that this is not to destroy love. Love is first. In other words, the corrective should always be given within the context of loving neighbor. I like that. He also, Yeah. He also go out, goes out of his way to remind us that such action should never result in shame, but is only done out of love. So at least it's steeped in the right language. I think, and he even recognizes the challenge of human nature, but I think any time someone's corrected, if they think they're doing right, they're going to feel a sense of shame. So it's, 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 it's stickier than maybe it comes off. Sure. So this is one of the most important parts for Calvin. And this is going to really reflect what Alan talked about, but I put a question mark, what type of sin, what type of sins does is included in this and he doesn't list which ones but rather um speaks about sin as it has offended someone else so this is not that private sin we just talked about that before but if indeed this is ethics oriented whether what i've done has offended someone else he does not try to qualify them but rather looks at them and how they impact others sure and i think it reflects calvin's um cooperative approach to faith 
which is so central to to what becomes uh, Reformed tradition. Um, for me, it begged the question, what if someone did something awful but didn't offend someone, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, this seems more about those offended than the sin or the sinner. Well, yeah, I mean, the, it's it's about the the maintaining the um, the welfare, the well being of the community right. as a whole. The yeah. community, so that's very much you know reformed tradition. Yeah. It's very much Calvin's. So quote he he says, Jesus does not say that whoever without exception has sinned is to be warned and rebuked privately and without a witness, but he wants us to try this way when we have been offended privately, not indeed as our own affair, but because we should be smitten with sorrow whenever God is offended. For Calvin, we should emphasize kindness to one another. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, um, I, I talked about this, this public and private sin. I wanted to go back in, kind of put Calvin into his context, because during the Middle Ages in particular, Thinking about sinning was as much as a sin as the action itself. And, and I mean, you can get where they got that from, right? It's from the Sermon on the Mount that, you know, that to the extent mm -hmm. that you have done it in your heart, you have done it, you right, know, right? Right, <laughs> right. but it's, it's, it's lived out in, in, in right, the, um, the, particularly in the monasteries, the ascetic traditions mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, hurting the flesh um, because of the private sins that you have in your heart and, Calvin acknowledges that these exist, that these kinds of sins, and they offend God, but he doesn't want that to become a public thing mm -hmm. because they don't necessarily hurt anybody else. Right. This, this is about things that you do that hurt someone else. And to me, it reflects really this move into a modern mindset rather than that medieval one for the church. Um, Again, the medieval church, there's this need to show repentance for things in, in the mind. And for Calvin, um, that's really between God and the individual. They don't require action from outside. They would have in Roman Catholic tradition, right? You would have had to repent it to a priest. The priest would have given you um, penance to do. You would have had to do these physical things just for what you thought. Um, but here in these kinds of situations, it's just a discussion between the individual and God. As Calvin says, no one shall accuse his brother rashly and needlessly by publishing his hidden sins. I mean, how would you know someone else's hidden sins anyway? <laughs> you, you, well, you would, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, in the Middle Ages, right, there were all kinds of things that, that, that were popping up that alluded to hidden sins, right? And which the witchcraft trials, which mm. ultimately spin off into your early modern period, it was, oh, well, they're hidden sins. They've got a little, you could see there's a little, that little blemish on their arm. That's a, that's a teat where the devil suckle, right? I mean, these really horrible things that people would look for physical manifestations wow. and it becomes a problem. That's and scary. You're seeing this clash. You're seeing this clash, right? Yeah. Uh, or forcing people to confess to things that they didn't actually do be and um, uh, or, or thoughts that they didn't actually have because you're torturing them. Those kinds of horrible things that were actually part of um, kind of medieval tradition. And we think about things like in the, uh, particularly the Spanish Inquisition, sure. well known for its brutality. Well, I think so. of, I think of uh, the crucible and the story, mm -hmm. you know, the story of the Salem mm -hmm. issue, the situation. A absolutely. And that's all part of that same tradition. Yeah. Um, human nature. 
another piece I picked from this in Calvin was his emphasis on human nature, which I was super impressed with. He is a student of human nature. And he notes that people called out for sin will reject the criticism. He therefore recommends gentleness as it will reconcile them to God, quote, those who were cut off from him, from God. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as he notes, all of us sin every day, it is important for us to give a friendly reproof rather than let someone languish. Yeah. Well, um, and it kind of sounds a note of humility there too, I think. Yeah, I think so. And then next he heads to being in front of witnesses. So if indeed that personal one-on-one doesn't produce anything, then you bring witnesses. And this is where you're called to, if you will, correct someone in front of witnesses if the individual is acting obstinately. And he gives two examples. First, the person who denies that he is guilty, he should be left alone. As Calvin says, there is no need to press him further. It's, it's, it's kind of like they're already lost. We need to move on. We're not going to get anywhere. They're probably not going to listen anyway. Yep. But those who make light of the wrongdoing should be good people to call out. Mm. And we should not just call that person out, but rather, quote, convinced by demonstration. Mm. Finally, in the last scenario, tell it to the church. And it's really interesting because Calvin recognizes that Christ does not mean church as the contemporary Christians understand church and therefore his contemporaries. Calvin places it within the context of Jewish tradition. In other words, he's pointing out it's not the Jewish, Jesus isn't in the context of the, of the Christian church right there, right? So he's saying Jesus doesn't have the ability to talk about it in the same way that someone post-resurrection does, right? So he says it's, he's really talking within the context of Jewish tradition. And in looking at Jewish tradition and Calvin's understanding, those who are brought forth in front of the leadership are those who are mocking the church and ignored the private admonitions of the previous examples. This, of course, could lead someone to excommunication. And he actually talks about this as a tool to take someone out of, if you will, the goodly society, right? <laughs> so, and a legitimate tool, right? He noted that it was not only done in Jewish tradition, but was done in many pagan traditions as well. Calvin uses this to explain that imprinted on the minds of human beings from the beginning was the necessity to remove those who polluted through their sins the broader community. It was, in Calvin's understanding, a practice of the law that must continue. I think it's unfortunate that that Calvin uses the term polluted the broader community uh, because because that I think that still reflects sort of the medieval mindset about sin. Absolutely. And, and I, I I think I I know I know that obviously if you're looking at the at the Hebrew Bible, th- there is that notion of polluting the broader community, but I prefer to see it more in terms of harming or causing to stumble, you know, and, right, and right, I think that's, right. I think, I think when we, when we think of people polluting the community, we're, we're in, we're on dangerous, right, we're on right. thin ice there. But that's where we get that tension in Calvin that we've talked about all through this podcast is that there's this places where he steps out and it feels very modern. And then places where we are thrown back into these. And some of the things he says, about the Roman Catholic Church as being the center of pollution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Again, kind of reflect that that in betweenness of him. Yeah. Um, of course, not all reformers agree with Calvin here. Um, and the challenge is that if the offender is a true believer, 
if that person desires to be reconciled with Christ. So, for example, I found Menno Simons, um, and he would, under cir- all circumstances, for the, the true believer would absolutely be forgiven and not mm-hmm. belittled. Um, the, but what's interesting with, with, with Simon, and I think with probably Calvin as well, that um, the offensive carnal sinners, their death is already known. Ah. So there you're starting to get some of that mm-hmm. election versus n- non-election place. And he doesn't go into it in this discussion about it, but I started to kind of see that in there. It's, these are people that are called to Christ, that are part of the community. Certainly they want to be reconciled to community. Um, if they don't want to be reconciled, then we need to kick them out. <laughs> and so it's an, inter- <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, the next thing, um, just kind of moving through the scripture, was that this is about teaching and discipline. Calvin claims that the use of binding, so we're talking about losing and binding, now belongs to the office of teaching, and that discipline and teaching belong together. Here, he applies the binding directly to the censures that are placed here about discipline. And at the end, Calvin argues that the purpose of this entire passage is that those who acknowledge their sin and pray for forgiveness are absolved. This is big. It it is a reminder that in the Roman Catholic Church, the response would have been some kind of penance. Mm -hmm. Here, it is the admission of sin and the free forgiveness of God. But those who refuse to acknowledge their sin and mock the church will be condemned not only here on earth, but in heaven. And I would argue that this gives people too much power. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I, I also think, think it misreads, I think it misreads that statement about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I think the point of that is for them to, 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 to um, uh, you know, you'd like to think that whoever was carrying out this process had qualms about it. And this was sort of meant more to say, yes, if it's necessary, you can go ahead and do this. You are, you are in, you know, within your, um, I guess, proper um, realm of, of decision making to, to, to go ahead and carry this out. And I, I think it's, I think that's a misreading of that passage, you know, that what, you know, if, if, if the church um, has to carry out this process in order to uh, discipline an offender, well, that means that they're condemned already in heaven. And that just doesn't work for me. Yeah, and I I think this is a shift for him. But he he gives a lot of power to those in charge of the church Mm -hmm. um, that are given that. Um, Calvin, again, is part of this um, communal church that he talks about. And the church, if you will, confirms the majesty of Jesus's word. So in Calvin's view, if the church is indeed following the true word of God, they are acting as Christ's ministers. And having these ministers, Christ, quote, derogates nothing for himself, for it is he alone who absolves and binds. Mm-hmm. So if the church is acting in that role, which I think you're right, it's too much power. Yeah. Well, it, it just assumes too much. Uh-huh, it does. It, it, and uh, I think I think what we can read of Calvin there. Is Calvin's own reality, though, yeah. right? I think you could write what's going on in Calvin's world with Calvin's church that, um, you know, people are on the attack. They claim to be part of the church, and they, they attack each other. And so he's trying to make sense of what he's observing around him. Um, yeah. Um, so and then he admits, well, there's actually hypocrites in the church. 
<laughs> and I find it, the whole thing is, is kind of inconsistent. Um, here, for Calvin, it is really about those who are, quote, quote, sincerely reconciled to the church. So there's confidence that Calvin gives to the true church to be representation of Christ. So I think this is a really interesting balance between the ability of God to forgive and yet the role of the church to act as judge. In my opinion, it doesn't differ that much from the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. But he does make the point of the Catholic Church first uses a single human being to act as the arbiter. Second, that the offense must be such that the person is at odds with the church, that the judgment of the church is not the first or second, but the third offense. Mm -hmm. And so what is really curious is how Calvin views the role of the Pope as from the devil and not of the church. <laughs> so I, I'm just like, I don't know how you jumps there, but as Christ points out, the lawful government of the church is given to elders. And this means not only the ministers of the word, but also those from the laity. So there you're getting part of his church organization. Well, and we can see that as a practical consideration. Is it really practical to take something like this up in front of the whole congregation? I don't think so. Right. But but at the same time, that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says, right. take it to the church. Right. And that's where <laughs> Calvin is getting this. So Yeah. Now, but it, 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 Matthew doesn't say take it to the leaders of the church. Matthew says take it to the right. church. Well, yeah, right, right. So according to Calvin, the Roman Catholic Church used this passage to defend auricular confession. And this is what is particularly offensive since there's no call for an individual to confess their sins to a priest. And Calvin calls it, quote, nonsense that is so weak that it's not necessary to spend much time in refuting Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. And then finally, even though all this has seemed very harsh, Calvin says all this has to be done in prayer. Prayer for those who are in the church, called to be in the church and want to be in the church. If someone does not want to be there and gets to step three, then we have the opportunity to excommunicate. And I think for Calvin, anyone that truly is called to be part of the church should never even get to step three. Right. It's, you know, and, and so that's what's so awkward about it, right? For Calvin, again, this really relates to the corporate church with the vision that called individuals will come together as one. Our church is in the mutuality of this passage so far, provides for an explanation of a church not living into that mutuality. And then finally, 1820 reflects um, the significance of the community again, reminding us that the church is made of people assembled together in the name of Christ. And it, it is this that should, quote, stir us to grow into a godly unity. In other words, practicing the faith is about the body of Christ, not an individual mindset, and that we should be humble and gracious with one another, putting others before ourselves. The person that pulls away does not care for Christ. And what is important to hear is that those who are in the church are the true followers of Christ. Yeah. Well, and that all sounds very, very uh, characteristic of Calvin and his, his approach to these things. I, it does. It does. It sounds, and it sounds very outdated. And I think what's really important to process with this is, again, that tension between he's not a modern thinker. Mm-hmm. But yet he's pushing the boundaries from where we were before. Sure. And that's that. So he's important in there. If you go and you just quote Calvin on this, it sounds really harsh and outdated, but it sounds really, really sophisticated compared to what came before it. Right. So that's what you always have to think about with Calvin. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. Thanks.
everybody. We're back. And during our little break, Alan and I were talking about this passage and really how it has been abused, we think, within the church tradition. And he has a very interesting experience to share. So I'm going to let him get started. Yeah, so when I was in my MDiv, um, I took a class on the theology of the church as an elective. And we actually read Jürgen Moltmann's Church and the Power of the Spirit. That was my first introduction to Moltmann's theology. Um, uh, this was um, probably the summer of 85, summer of 85, so almost 40 years ago now. Um, and honestly, wading through Moltmann's Church and the Power of the Spirit then was really difficult. It was slow going for me. And I, I can't say that at the time I came out with a whole lot of understanding of Moltmann's theology. These days, having studied Moltmann for the past 40 years, you know, I tell, I recommend people that if you want a good introduction to Moltmann's theology, read Church and the Power of the Spirit. <laughs> but then it was really tough going. But uh, the, pa- the, the professor who taught the class was, was one of those guys who came would come in and he would just kind of open it up for discussion. And there were several people in the class who kept wanting Tim to talk about church discipline. They were just seemingly obsessed with church discipline. And it was like they had this, I mean, this is the only place where it's really dealt with in, in the New Testament. And so they were just, they were just obsessed with these verses. And it was, I, you know, looking back on it, I really have the feeling that they were just itching to expel someone from their church that mm-hmm. was giving them grief or giving them problems or something like that. And, you know, as I, as I was going through my section, and really as we heard from Calvin, you know, that is not the spirit of this passage at all. That's not what this is about. And in fact, you know, the the... The viewing church discipline or excommunication as a a sort of casual use of power that is somehow legitimate for anybody to use, uh, however they choose, however they choose to, you know that's that's kind of the problem uh, that we're dealing with here is that this passage has been used in that way. Uh, throughout the history of the church. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's like an excuse, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If somebody's, if somebody's um, a thorn in your side or somebody's putting a burr under your saddle, this is a convenient way to get rid right, of it. Right, right. And yet, on the other hand, I was, you know, as I was thinking about this passage today and we're reading it, and I was thinking about, but what if you do have somebody in the church that's really done something that, that is harmful to someone else. And I thought of something like sexual abuse, maybe mm-hmm. to a minor, you know, mm-hmm. something that you are really going to struggle with. If, if you have somebody that, that refuses to um, acknowledge there was any wrongdoing there and continues to do it, I think you do have to have an instrument for asking somebody to leave because yeah. you can't, you can't, that will hurt the body of the church. You, I don't know. You have to protect. You have to protect the children in your church, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but more than right. that, I mean, you know, and I think I think when it comes to this notion of the little ones, you know, we all know that there are people who seem to be more or less um, strong in their faith, more yes, or less true. strong in their sense of self, more or less, you know, strong in their ability to just kind of. Um, 
uh, stand on their own two feet. And, and you know, a, a person like that, uh, an, a person who is, who is harming others can really harm a person who is not strong uh, in their right. faith or not strong That's in true. their sense of self. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I was thinking about, I had, you know, I worked with confirmation class. So those were youngsters. Mm-hmm. And again, I remember one girl said, oh, this boy at school, he was just terrible. He is, oh, he so deserves to be kicked out of school. He did that. And I thought, whoa. And I just hope he gets that. Wow. What's coming yeah. to him. And, yeah. you know, the rest of the kids were kind of taken aback. So, you know, thinking about this, you know, we talked a little bit afterwards, the two of us together about, you know, what might be a, a different way to explain mm, your frustration. And, um, and of course, that's easy when it's a teacher, me and a, a youngster, a little bit easier than when it's another adult you're talking right. to. And right. how do you, how do you, well, I, and, I think. And that's part of the reason why I started off my whole segment was saying, you know, to us in this day and time, it's it's somewhat unpractical and maybe even offensive because, you know, we're dealing with um, congregations that are voluntary, right? And so if, if, if someone is, is acting out in a way that, that is creating conflict in your congregation and is, it is harming the church that way, you call and and you even if you go through this process and you try to admonish them personally and you take mm-hmm. a few of the elders you maybe you bring them before the session maybe you go all the way and bring them before the church you know are they even going to show up no and and if they do world. if they do and and the church um, uh, excludes them you know they're going to go out in the community and badmouth the church. Exactly. And, and you know, so it's, it's uh, you know, we're, we're kind of in a dilemma in our modern context mm-hmm. with reference to trying to, to do this. Now, with, with a situation of, of child abuse or sexual misconduct or anything like that, it's a lot clearer. But when it comes right. to just a matter of somebody who is being right. rude or mean, spirited, or, or maybe spreading falsehoods or whatever... I don't know that it, there's even a practical way to em, employ this process. I don't. I don't either. And it's reminding me that pre the pre modern church was also the community. You know, like Calvin's community, the church was the state. I mean, they were two separate branches, but they worked together. So you got kicked out of the church. You got kicked out of the right? community. We have right? no such. We have no such um, uh, authority. You know, we don't have any no. civil authority. No, we don't. Yeah, we don't. So, so for, for for me, I think I think I think I'm focusing. I'm ten, I tend to focus more on the spirit of community that is yes. implied in these passages. The whole idea That's, of humility, the whole idea of mutual care, the whole idea of you know we're so connected to one another that even if we had to do something like this, it would hurt us. Uh, to have mm-hmm. to do it, the whole idea of you know living and breathing the spirit of forgiveness that the whole that our our intention right. in in our interactions with one another must be always toward rest, restoration, you know, right. and, and well, then and then that we that, we that that we always, I mean, we always see everything we do as under you know in the presence of Christ and under His lordship, and and we're not we're not in a sense we're not free to act however we please, but we are bound in that sense to to right. to follow his example. 
I agree, and that's what the approach I'm going to take. I do think um, preaching this as well gives us a chance to address how it's been abused in the mm-hmm. church, yeah. and, and perhaps a, a new hearing kind of approach where you could talk about how you have to put this in the context. If you take it out of context, you don't understand. You don't understand Jesus. <laughs> well, and it it, it so. leads it it has it has led to great harm mm-hmm. in the history oh, of the church. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's not hypothetical. We we can we can talk about the actual instances in the history of the church when oh, it has led right. to great harm. Well, I mean, the Reformed tradition, unfortunately, for a while, used to fence the fence the communion table. If you recall, right? You had to be examined first if you were ready to go. Well, and and oh. you know, you guys know I was a Baptist seminary professor, and and one of the things that I um, that I used to talk about um, was the fact that some of the followers of Calvin used to drown the people they called the rebaptizers, you know, and mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a, <laughs> that that's an that's, abuse. That's an abuse. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's just not, it's not where we are today. Yeah. That was considered to be a, but it wasn't just Calvin. I mean, the, the no, I know. Magistera Reformation, right. including the Catholics, and the Lutherans um, yeah. were not in favor of that because they they really thought that was dangerous. Right? No, I, I know. Like the, the it was a threat, was taking away the power of God. But oh, how uh, how backwards and retrospective. Right? It's like really? Right. <laughs> Right. Right. Where's the restoration? And it's, it's it's a little bit like you know, well, it's just, where's the restoration in that? You drown somebody, uh, you know. I, I guess someone might say, well, it's a little bit like Paul saying that you deliver someone over to the devil so that maybe his body perishes, but his soul can be preserved. Yes, you know, like that. but yeah, just really. that's that's still pretty convoluted thinking, you know. And it really so is a too a little bit too convenient way to um to to rationalize the abuse of power, definitely. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think what I'm reminded with with Calvin's reflection here, people that have done this before, is really um, how we're so polluted by our own human ambition. And, and we could see that even if they don't mean it to be, it's still, it's still, still at the end of the day, we're, we're all of us kind of impacted by our own our own righteousness, if you will. Well, and and that, and the problem with that, of course, is that we are all fallen and fallible, and we have it. to remember that. And and so for me, when I'm able to, when I come to a situation of conflict, when I have somebody who's who's treating me in a way that I don't particularly care for, whether it's in a session meeting or whether it's you know in the community or whatever right. it may be. Um, the first thing I try to do when I'm, at least when I'm not triggered in my own emotional reaction, <laughs> uh, the first thing I try to do is is to have, first of all, have compassion on that person, which, you know, it's in the spirit of love, right? That's what Calvin said. Right, right, right. I try right. to have compassion on them. And then I look at myself and try to see, okay, what's my contribution here to this conflict and how can I change the way I'm interacting with this person right. so that we have a better outcome? And I, right. I, to me, I think that's that's really where where we have the most potential to um, sort of uh, make a powerful change is by looking at ourselves 
in in a situation of conflict and you know changing you know first of all recognizing what might i be contributing toward this conflict and then figuring out a way to to act in a way that promotes um uh, reconciliation and restoration in the community exactly exactly and i think if we do that we're going to get closer um to really the 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 heart of what's intended. Well, the spirit, at least, of what was intended by this. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.